God's plan for a healthy church is our study. We're going through the books of First and Second Corinthians, spiritual warfare, marking true and false apostles, true and false leaders, true and false teachers, and that has been our focus. We're going to pick up in a new section, verse 5. Finished up through verse 4 last time. We'll review that in just a minute, but I'd like you to look, if you would, your copy of God's Word, 2 Corinthians 11, 5. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, verse 6, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things, verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge. Verse 8, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. Verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia. Verse 11, why? Because I do not love you. God knows that I do. Verse 12, but what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. Stop right there. We've seen over the last several weeks, in fact, back uh, maybe about eight weeks when we started in chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is concerned about the church in Corinth and, and who they've been listening to. False teachers have come into the church and by their teaching have taken some people captive. Paul's not content now at this last part of this last letter to allow the church to keep going back and forth and being uncertain about what they believe, so he's taking some opportunities to address that remnant of people who are uh, captive by those who are teaching what is false. And in the process of doing that, we've been able to identify what a true teacher and a false teacher look like. We've been able to label some of those. If you've been with us, you, you know that. If you're a note taker, you can see on the back there'll be some takeaways for you. It'll be helpful for you today. And uh, Paul has to defend his position as an apostle. Those new false apostles have come in and they've made certain statements about Paul. He has to defend himself and remind them that he has been giving them the truth and defend what he's taught them. They've made Paul look incompetent and undesirable. They have undermined his authority to the point that he has to resort to what really he detests, which is to promote his own ministry in order to keep the church from going astray. And so when we think about this situation now, and I was thinking about this today, uh, this week as I was studying this passage, we have the advantage over the Corinthians of long ago, uh, who really had only the beginnings of the writings of the New Testament, and Paul just appeared to be one voice competing with a number of voices. And, and he wrote letters, of course, to them, and they were, being, they were cyclical, so they were making their ways to other churches. And, and so it was just one voice, and, and we see this, and, and we see what they say about him, and, and we are appalled, and we should be, that they would talk about Paul that way and discard, uh, disregard him like that. But of course, we have all the writings. And, and we know the influence that God has given Paul through the New Testament. And we know the impact he had in the, in the new church. And in that same vein, certainly, as we think about the modern church, to whom much is given, much is also required. And, and here we are, and we're rich when it comes to truth. And yet, through the history of the church, especially now, we still see how easily it is to get off track, to be seduced, to be deceived by foolish men, and now women in the pulpit who will are just as devious and just as deluded as they were in the first century. The problem is, though, that uh, we're, easily, we're easily confused and easily drawn astray, but we have all the truth. The problem is, is the modern church is a mile wide and an inch deep and really doesn't know what the Word of God says. So they're easily, they, they hear some soundbite, they watch some certain video capture, 
on online and then all of a sudden they're carried away oh I didn't know that I didn't know what I should have known and they're just pulled right away because they didn't have the the teaching they needed and so the passages we are looking at then as we think about that whole thing are just as viable and just as relevant now because the church is still the vehicle by which the Lord uses to bring evangelism to the world and so it's obviously always going to be a target it was a target right from the beginning it continues to be a target and so False teachers don't really care what you believe as long as you don't believe the singular truth that you need to believe. And so it's important that, uh, that we are able to identify the truth and expose the lies because our master has given this as a job we're to do. In fact, we saw, turn back just one chapter in your copy of God's Word to chapter 10, verse 5. Remember this, he said, we're destroying speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. So everything, part of the job Paul is going to do in the church and part of the job that you're to do in the culture is to understand what the Word of God says so that you can destroy, tear down speculations, uh, raise the lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God. That his clear, underst- the clear understanding we get from, his, from the Word of God about who he is, his nature, his character, uh, and how he works in the world, those are clear understandings of God, and we're supposed to, by the truth of God, take those things down. And then this, we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So not just the thoughts in the world, but our own thoughts, which wouldn't lead us in a different direction. Those thoughts don't own us. And we can take them captive by doctrine, by understanding what the Word of God says. And then verse 13, he said, but we'll not, measure, we'll not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. And that, that we saw that that was one of the trademarks of a faithful teacher, that he's just going to work inside the sphere God's given him. And my encouragement to you when we went through that passage is that you have a sphere of influence that you are currently a part of. You may be a student, maybe you're in the professional world, uh, you're doing some certain thing in the world, you have a circle of influence. That sphere that God has given you is yours uh, to wield the truth carefully, to understand what the Word of God says, and to have it available so that you can say when falseness is presented as truth, that isn't really true, this is what's true. And the Lord gives you that opportunity, and then He says, God has apportioned to us a measure to reach even as far as you, and my encouragement to you was that do you have a plan for those around you who don't know Christ? So uh, obviously you're witnessing to people who are close to you, you should be anyway, and then you're thinking about people, maybe your neighbors or somebody who's, who is a little further from you, but your plan is to get to the point where you can give the truth to them. Paul always had a plan, go into a certain city, establish a church, uh, establish leaders in the church, and move on. But That was Paul's plan completely, repeatedly, over and over again. And Paul says he was, and Paul was completely content to work in that sphere. He wasn't aching for something else. He wasn't desiring to go somewhere else. He just wanted to do that. And as we saw, he wasn't well known. He didn't become really well known until after his death, and the church was established. And now we see 75% of the New Testament penned by the Apostle Paul, and the impact he's made is, is immeasurable. So, uh, verse 18: For it's not he who commends himself is approved, but he who the Lord commends. And that's just arranging your life in such a way that you know what the Lord requires from you, and then you do it. And at the end of your life, he's well pleased. It's really not that complex, is it? Just do what you know to do in the faithful way that he wants you to do it, and you're arranging your life in that way so that you don't have to worry about whether you spent your life as you should. Now, last time we were together, we made it all the way through verse 4. In verse, uh, verse uh, chapter, yeah, verse 4, but in verse 1, he said in, in chapter 11, I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. So he's going to continue to defend himself, and he calls that foolishness. He's going to defend his qualifications. He, does, he shouldn't have to do it. He hates to do it. And he knows the Lord doesn't really want him to, to commend his ministry that way somehow to win people over because of who he is. But um, in 2 Corinthians 10, 7, if you're still back there, uh, he had to return to it because back in verse 7 he says, you're looking at things as they are outwardly, so they're judging Paul according to 
the evaluation of false teachers. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself. Just as he is Christ, so also are we. So if you can figure out that you're in Christ, he says you should at least be able to figure out that I am. And in verse 11, he says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letter when present, when absent, rather, such persons we also are in indeed when present. So they were saying he was one person when he's away, he's another person when he's close, and they're just saying, he's just saying, listen, I'm the same person whether I'm far from you or close to you. Consistent lifestyle we saw was another mark of a faithful teacher, a faithful ministry. Whatever they are at the church, that's what they are in the world, and you know you can trust them if, they're, if there's no difference to how they act. And then in verse 14, he says, for we are not overextending ourselves as if we did not reach to you, for we were the first to come even as far as you in the gospel. Of, cor of course, he shouldn't have to say that. They knew that, but he's saying, listen, it's, I realize the only thing that's good in me is Christ, but that doesn't mean I can't do anything. I, through Christ's power, I did come to you. We established the church. You should know this. And so the, the Corinthians should have been wise enough to figure out that these new guys who were there weren't saying what they should be saying. But Paul has to go back and just say this, this foolishness. And then in verse 15, he says, not boasting beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors, but with the hope that as your faith grows, we will be within our sphere enlarged even more by you. He's looking for that, that growth in the church which helps him to grow, and then he's going to move on and do some other things as the Lord opens those doors. So in our passages today, he really keeps going in this same vein. He's going he's to have a, a couple of things that are his considerations uh, and concerns in the church, and then he's going to jump right back into this kind of thing, pointing out, and really then the next 10 verses or so, He's going to point out a lot of his accomplishments, the things the Lord allowed to happen to him, which qualify him, and they should be listening to him. And he's going to reveal his heart to them again, and he says in verse 2 of chapter 11, look there, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. And we looked at this last time. He was always worried about those under his care, and a faithful teacher will be that. They have a, a jealousy of God, understanding of the, the folks that they minister to walking with the Lord. And it grieves them when they don't. When It grieves Paul and, the, and those who teach when people don't walk with the Lord. It is in his care. And, and Paul, in touting what he's done, he shows his motivation for the ministry he does among them, particularly the hard stuff he has to do in verse uh, last part of verse 2, he says, For I betrothed you to one husband, so that in Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So his ministry will be done with a future marriage in mind. And that's always the faithful teacher is going to be doing that. They want to present the bride, which is the, the, the body of Christ, to Jesus in that marriage ceremony as a pure bride. And, and then he says this, and because there's something going on, obviously, that's causing that to be some question mark, he says in verse 3, but I'm afraid that... In this whole idea of presenting them as a pure bride, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, and, and that idea that is the next mark of a faithful teacher, faithful ministers are motivated to teach the word because of the fear that some in the church might be led astray. And so they are motivated and they want to protect the church from that kind of thing. He says, listen, I'm talking to you again because you're going to be a pure bride. That's what I want you to be. And I see that you're being deceived. And it's not even a, a speculation. We know that they have. And so he says, listen, I, I need to protect you from that. Paul knows well how susceptible, how vulnerable the people uh, that are that are being uh, led astray. And, and so that's why he uses the illustration of Eve. And if you know that Bible uh, passage, Eve didn't believe she was sinning. She didn't willfully go and listen to the serpent and say, okay, I'm going to disobey God. She was deceived. In other words, she, the deception was she thought she was being given the right information, and up till then she didn't have the right information. And that's always how false teachers work. And that's why Paul uses this illustration. They come in and they cast truth as error and then offer error as truth. And then it appears to be the right thing. And you're thinking, oh, well, I didn't know that. Why didn't I know that? I should be doing those things. 
And so Paul's concerned about that, and so he expresses his fear and why he's committed to the word, and he says, I'm afraid that your minds will be led astray. I'm afraid they're going to get into your mind and confuse you. So Paul and the faithful under-shepherd is going to be committed to making sure that doesn't happen by doctrine. And you remember I told you before, as you think about these churches filled with people under false teachers, and you know they're false teachers, and you wonder why they got into that position, and they're, not, and they're still sitting there, it's because they've never been taught doctrine, they don't understand the basic foundation of the Word of God, and then this new thing seems like the right thing, and, and they're deceived. Paul says that shouldn't happen to the church, because I want you to present you as a pure bride. And so the under-shepherd wants to protect the church from being led astray, and every true under-shepherd's job is to protect the church from that by discharging the word. Now, and if they don't do that, beloved, if they're not discharging the word verse by verse so you know what it says, what it means by what it says, and how that applies to you, then they're not doing the job, and they're not, dis- they're not doing the job as they should. And I want to take you to a passage, we have a few minutes, and I did this in first service. Look at his, will you look at Ezekiel chapter 13? Ezekiel chapter 13. Look there if you would. And, and I want to read this to you. It's not in the slides. You're, you're going to have to turn there. And um, I read it yesterday, and I shared it with Laura, just how, I, how appropriate I thought it was, how it applied to today, um, the things that he says. And you'll see this right away. I'm just going to read just out of my Bible, so you just read along, and we'll just make some comments on it. So, so Ezekiel's here. Of course, the, the uh, nation of Israel is getting ready to be taken away uh, captive. And you'll see what he says to Ezekiel. He says, Verse 1, he says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, So Ezekiel's hearing what the word of the Lord is, and he's going to, and here's what the word of the Lord says, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel. So who's the target? Uh, Those who claim to be prophets of Israel. Those who claim to be speaking uh, for God. Um, Prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy from their own inspiration. How are they prophesying? Uh, Is the Lord actually speaking to them? No, they're getting it from their own thoughts. They're just saying what they want to say. That's what it means. Prophesy against those who say they're speaking for me, but they're only doing it from their own inspiration. Listen to the word of the Lord. So go to those people and say, listen to what I'm about to say. Verse 3, thus saith the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who are following their own spirit. There's another way to express it. They're just saying what they want to say. They're doing in, in the assembly what they want to do. As they're with, with the Jewish people, they're just telling them the things that they think they should tell them. They're not speaking on the Lord's behalf. They're they are following their own spirit, and it says, and have seen nothing. So it's just, they're bankrupt. They, they don't understand anything about what I'm, tell, what I'm telling them or what I want the church to know or, or what I want here, Israel, to know. They're just speaking of their own accord. Verse 4, O Israel, your prophets have been like foxes among ruins. What's that mean? It just means that after a town is destroyed, the wildlife come in, comes in. What are they doing? They're scavenging and finding what they can find and, and enriching themselves on the, whatever's left over. That's what they're doing. They're just coming into the flock and, and taking what they want. Verse 5, you have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. In other words, you had a job to do. You were supposed to equip Israel so they would be wise enough to understand uh, what the days were like ahead of them. They were going to see they were going into captivity. They were going to understand this was the word of the Lord, and they would submit to that and know that God had their best intention in mind. They didn't do any of those things because they were just speaking of their own spirit, and they weren't carried along by God's inspiration. So they just said what they wanted to say. Look at verse 6. They see falsehood and lying divination who are saying, the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them. In other words, every time they say the Lord says this, they're just lying and it's falsehood. They're not saying anything the Lord wants them to say. Yet they hope for fulfillment of their word. In other words, they hope that what they say is actually going to come true. And what were they saying? They were saying, peace, peace, you know, you're going to be, we're going to be restored and all of those kinds of things. And they're secretly saying, well, I hope this really happens. 
So not speaking on God's behalf. Verse 7, did you not see a false vision and speak a lying divination when you said the Lord declares, but it's not I who've spoken? In other words, admit that you're not talking for me. That's what he's, he's telling Ezekiel to tell these false prophets. Admit it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, verse 8, because you have spoken falsehood and seen a lie, therefore, behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord God. And guess what? Still, still against it, still against falseness, still against departing from what the Word of God says and doing what you think the Holy Spirit's telling you to do or, you know, this is Jesus and love is love and whatever, you know, we're going to just exalt these kinds of things because we don't know what God really says. Listen, those people are all speaking of their own inspiration and under their own understanding and they're not, they're not uh, representing the Lord. I'm against you, declares God, and he's still against it. Verse 9, so my hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and utter lying divinations, and they will have no place in the council of my people, nor will they be written down in the register of the house of Israel, nor will they enter the land of Israel, that you may know that I am the Lord God. And so he's got this idea, uh, they've got this idea that everything's going to be great. God's going to say, I'm going to show you what's true because this is what's going to happen to him. Verse 10, it's definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. Now look down at verse 22, if you would, and this, this is the last part that we'll look at. You can look at the rest of this on your own time, but you'll see how, um, you'll see, and a number of other chapters talk about the same thing, and it's very, very relevant, I think, for today. Verse 22, because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood when I did not cause him grief. And you know, nothing speaks to that more than to watch a church exalt wickedness and exalt falsehood and, and, and exalt the things God has said are wrong and say we're going to be inclusive and we're going to be uh, very, uh, very open to all those kinds of things. So because you dishearten the righteous, and you get disheartened, don't you? And the righteousness of God is in you that you, you feel offended for God that people are allowing in what we would call the church to do the things that God actually forbids. I did not cause him grief but have in, and, then, and then the other side of it, encourage the wicked not to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life. And that's precisely what happens on the other side. When you don't speak against sin and when you say things that uh, God says are wrong are right, you, you don't, you're not warning the wicked to turn away. And it's not that you're not welcoming people of all walks of life into the church. and You're not associating with them so you can witness to them. The fact of the matter is, though, at some point you have to bridge the gap and say, this is not God's will for you. And I'm saying this in all love because you're headed to destruction. And the, and the path you've chosen is the path that's going to bring you tons of sorrow. So these are very important things. And, you know, people will find, you know, if you want to live in that kind of life, you'll, they'll find a, a preacher at a church to make you feel completely comfortable. And they fall into a category you don't want to associate with. And it just is the same all the way across. So it's not that, much, not that different. So every true under-shepherd, every true prophet from the Old Testament who reiterates what God said, all the way through till now, is, is their job is to protect the church from... Uh, from falsehood by discharging the word, and when they don't do that, uh, they failed in their job as an under-shepherd. Now, you, you can't emphasize the teaching of the word enough uh, because it keeps us focused on, and here's that last part of verse 3, um, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In fact, and we looked at that last time, so we're kind of where we finished up. This is, that's what they're going to be led astray from. When they're listening to falseness, and whatever it is, in whatever direction it takes, whether it's legalism and it just adds a whole bunch of things to your walk with the Lord, or whether it's just freedom and, and welcoming whatever sin and whatever pattern of life you have, we're not going to condemn you. Uh, Paul expresses the Christian life in very simple terms. When you walk away from the simplicity of what uh, the Word says, what it means by what it says, and how it applies to you, you, you really walk away from uh, that life of loving Christ only and supremely as Savior and Lord. That's the simplicity of your relationship to Jesus. There's, there's a beauty about all that, isn't there? There's, there's an uncluttered devotion 
that just strips away all the stuff that doesn't have to be there. And we looked at 1 John, right, and, and what does it mean to love Christ, that simplicity and loving of Christ? It means to obey his commands, right? And his commands are not burdensome. Or he who says he loves me will do what I say. And then Jesus at the very end of that passage said, so that the world may know that I love the Father, I what? Do everything that the Father says. So it's just very simple, and that's, it's an uncluttered devotion, but that's not where some of the Corinthian church are right now. And, and you look at verse 4, for if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we've not preached, so, you know, false teachers had taught about Jesus, and they do still today, but it wasn't the simple devotion to obedience to his word. False prophets talked about God, but it wasn't what he wanted said, it's what they wanted him to say, and then they hoped it would come true. So it hasn't changed a whole lot. But this other Jesus that Paul's talking about could be a Jesus that isn't concerned about sin. It could be a Jesus that isn't concerned about a pure bride or one that's just concerned about making you wealthy and healthy and giving you what you want. But that wasn't the Jesus that Paul had taught them. And then he says, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received. This isn't hypothetical. They'd received all of this. But, you know, they received the Holy Spirit when they were redeemed. But the false apostles came with a different spirit. And we saw what happens with all of that. We looked at 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 7. You know, when the Corinthians received those preachers who were teaching a different Jesus, they weren't getting that from the Holy Spirit whose presence was already in their lives. They were receiving a different spirit. And those were deceitful spirits, Paul says to 1 Timothy 4, and doctrines of demons. And it's communicated to the church, Paul said to Timothy, by the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience. Just another way to talk about false teachers. Hypocrisy of liars. And that very similar. You would see that in Ezekiel. When you're just a liar, you're saying what you want to say, but you're not saying what I say. So hard words, but they're coming and they're teaching a different Jesus and a different spirit, and it's being authenticated, if you will, by ancient spirits who created at the creation of itself back in ancient times and at the beginning of the universe. And they've been around a long time, six thousand years, and and they're smarter than we are, and and they've rebelled against the sovereignty of God, and they've been deceiving men and women for a long time, and they know how people are, and so it's easy to manipulate them if they don't receive the truth, and they receive some form of lie, then they can authenticate all of that and just make you believe that there's power there, and that's what's going on, see? You look at some of the false teachers and some of the false churches, it looks like, oh man, there's all kinds of stuff going on, but who's making it happen, see? If they're doing things the Word of God says not to do, then we know who's making it happen. Paul, Paul says the Spirit expressly says in the end times, these things will come. Carried along by deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So we know where the power is coming from. And it's an ugly thing to think about, but at least if you know the truth, you could be delivered, right? So they are very convincing, they're very seductive. Uh, false teachers teach a different Christ, and uh, they teach a power, but it's a different spirit and a different gospel, which you have not accepted. Which one did they accept? Well, by grace through faith, but which is the one that replaced it? And we saw, we don't know exactly here, but when you go to Galatians, it's easy to see that. Paul says to them how, how soon it is, how quickly you have, you have left the gospel and, and listened to another. How amazing that is you listen to another, which isn't another. It's, it's bad news. It isn't good news, see? It's not by grace through faith alone. It's grace through faith plus you do a bunch of things because that's what was happening in the Galatian church. Not only do you have grace through faith, but you've got to obey the law of God and you've got to uh, do these certain things in the flesh and you've got to, you know, adding all these things to it. Paul says, that's not the gospel, preaching a different gospel. So it's always something like that. So Paul says to those, you know, look, these guys come, they preach to you another Jesus, they come in the power of a different spirit, developing another gospel. And in the end of verse four, and this is a sad commentary, it's not hypothetical, you bear this beautifully. So it's, you're perfectly fine with all of that. His fear's legitimate, they should have rejected it, they should have tossed them out, but they didn't. And this is his language. And, and then he uses that word bear, and I like this, because in verse one, 
So he's in verse 4, and he says, you bear this beautifully. But back in verse 1, do you remember? He said in verse 1, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. So in other words, he uses the word again and kind of segue into how he's going to have to uh, articulate his own ministry to them. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. And, and he says, listen, if you can, and the idea is, if you can bear beautifully the false teachers and their other Jesus and their other spirit and their other gospel, then you can certainly bear with me when I draw attention to some of my own credentials to point out this foolishness. And I think that's the connection there. Now look at verse 5. 2 Corinthians eleven five, He says this, For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, verse 6, but even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I'm not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we've made this evident to you in all things. So the idea here is this. From expressions of concern and, and looking at what's going on in the church, Paul now turns to a personal defense, and that's what he just got through saying. You're going to bear with me here in this foolishness if you can bear these false teachers. So the intruders have really published their credentials and compared themselves with themselves, and so Paul begins to declare his status with respect to these men and others. And Paul says, if I am to evaluate myself then, look there, I consider myself not in the least inferior, hustereo, it's a great verb, and, and to know how it's used here is important. It's perfect, active, infinitive. And the infinitive, it means it's, it's not limited in person or number. So people say, well, who's he talking about when he says, you know, I'm not inferior? Who's he not inferior to? Well, it's not specifically indicating, and I think that's a good way to go about that. It, it's been this way from the past. That's the perfect. Uh, it is this way now, and that's, that's the active. And then it doesn't matter who you compare me to. It, there's not a person or number. So no matter who it is, if you're measuring my ability, Paul says, I don't come up short of them. I don't, get me- I don't get measured as if I'm less. That's the idea. So who's he talking about? Well, he says, the most eminent apostles. So no matter who it is, again, no matter how many there are, when you measure what I've done, I don't come up behind anybody. Now, as you can well imagine, that's probably hard for Paul to say, no doubt, because he considered himself a blasphemer. He had a great education. He knew more than the other apostles did by way of, edu- by way of theology, and yet... In all of that knowledge, he actually missed the Jesus who, was, who came, Messiah, and then persecuted the church who had embraced him. So Paul didn't have a very high evaluation of himself. In fact, if you sum that all up, his great education profited him nothing, and isn't that exactly what he said? All these things I count as rubbish to gain Christ. So even his great education wasn't that important to him when he realized he missed the most important thing about all the theology he'd learned all through his life. So his, you know, that's a common testimony for Paul. He's not shy about saying it. He's the worst of sinners, and, and we've looked at those passages. But here, in, in, this, in this foolish thing he believes he has to do in, in touting his own ability, he says, if you want to have an objective standard of outcome, of ability, whatever it may be, I measure up to that. Then if you look then at the answer to who's he talking to, who's, who's, who's he directed it to, the most eminent apostles, well, it has to be, I think, both. It has to be the false apostles who would consider themselves all-stars by a subjective standard they came up with. And, and it's also the true apostles, uh, the 12, particularly the ones from the Jerusalem church, who are measured by the standard of Jesus' approval. Both he's talking to. And, and uh, it probably just depends on who's reading the letter. I just thought about this this week. Whoever has the letter in their hand, so in other words, you have the false apostles, they pick up the letter Paul sends, and they read that, uh, he, they say, um, I'm not myself in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, and they're going to think Paul's talking about them. Oh, yeah, well, of course, he's talking about us, right? And, um, and they might say, well, you know, Paul got the title right for us, but, you know, he's wrong about being equal to us because he isn't. 
Of course, Paul's going to make clear what he really thinks about them just in a few paragraphs because he's going to say they're false apostles and deceitful workers, starting in verse 13. So he's not going to be shy about just pointing out, I wasn't talking about you. But he is directing it to them so they'll know where their place is. And then he could be talking, you know, if a faithful person picks it up at, at, at Corinth and begins to read it, they're going to think, as they read that letter, they're going to think about Peter and James, right? They're going to think about the eminent apostles. But with the statement, Paul just covers all of his bases. And a literal rendering of the statement could be, you know, for I reckon in no way to have come short of the, and you can just say it like this way, superlative apostles, the, the really good guys, whoever they are. I'm not short of any of them. So using similar language, and, and this is a great illustration from Galatians 2, 6. We'll just have a couple here real quickly. But um, he says this, and it really uses just the same kind of language as he talks about the apostles approved by the Lord. Uh, he says, but from those who were of high reputation, again, kind of thinking about eminent apostles, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. So whether they were there from the beginning or I, I'm here now, God doesn't care as long as we're serving him together. Well, those who were of, here it is again, reputation contributed nothing to me. In other words, I didn't learn anything from them. I didn't get my training from them. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, and here's what he's talking about, just as Peter has been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship, to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles, verse 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given me, so James, Cephas, and John, who were reputed to be pillars, there's another word that kind of identifies that same eminent apostles, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So, as he, as he thinks about his record and he thinks about their record, he concludes that there are no deficiencies on his side. And he has to say that to the church, unfortunately. And, and that at no time have they excelled him in the quality of their work. So, in other words, there's no comparison because they and he serve different ends. Paul went to the Gentiles and, and Peter and James and John went to the Jews. And so I think you can say... if. In general, his idea is, if he hasn't fallen behind these true apostles, then it goes without saying he isn't falling behind the false ones. Okay, so I think that's the general sense of where Paul wants to go there. Now, let's look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge, in fact... In every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. One, one of their attacks on Paul was that he was a very poor speaker. Remember this? Remember back in chapter 10, 2 Corinthians 10, 10, he says, For they say his letters are witty and strong. And that gives us the indication that someone from the church has either written a letter to Paul or come to Paul and told him, there's some trouble in the church, and they're saying this about you. And, of course, that could be very heartbreaking if, if you were invested in that, if you thought it was important to be uh, a persona on stage, and then people say, ah, you know, so-so, I really don't like him, doesn't appeal to me, whatever. But first they say his letters are waiting and strong, and they could hardly say anything else, because they couldn't deny the power of his, of his letters, they couldn't deny his reasoning, his theology, they couldn't deny that his letters had clarity and rationality and spirituality. I mean, everybody knew that, so they couldn't really say his letters stink, because everybody knew they didn't. But his personal presence is unimpressive. That's the first time they really take a swipe at him. So he's nothing to look at. We looked at all the church fathers and how they evaluated that whole thing. His persona, his demeanor was also not attractive. 
The guy has no charm. He has no personal magnetism to draw people to him. Uh, you know, where's that strong presence that should match his letters? That was the question. You know, he's a different person when he's here, and he's a different person when he's away. So you'd think he'd be a different guy if we judge by his letters. So he just hasn't got it. And then his, they say his speech is contemptible. And this, is, this gets us back to the passage we just looked at. As an orator, he's terrible. So in their opinion, the combination of being homely and having an unimposing personality and being unable to communicate effectively, that's pretty serious in their minds. This guy doesn't have it. So Paul says, he says, even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I'm not so in knowledge. And, and the Greek uh, in speech is idiotes. That's where we get our word idiot. So Paul, in essence, says, even if I'm an idiot in speech. So he's just kind of playing right into it. And he, and he doesn't really care. We're going to see this in just a minute. But um, in the New Testament, idiotes refers to an unlearned, illiterate man. So it's how we use the word. And it appears the, that Paul's conceding this first point. It's very self-depreciating. And that sounds more like Paul, doesn't it? I'm the worst of sinners. You know, I, I, I persecuted the church. You know, if the Lord saved me, he can save you. That kind of thing is more like what Paul would say. But remember, if you think about Paul, he didn't really care what everybody thought about him. And he said that numerous times. I don't care if you judge me. The Lord's the one who judges me. It doesn't matter to me what you think of me. So Paul had a, a pretty straightforward way to approach this. He wasn't invested in what people thought. It wasn't like a reverse way to pat yourself on the back because people thought you were great. Paul didn't care. So he, and this is very important though, I think, he concedes this less important area of oratorical skill. He claims competency for himself in the far more important area, market, of what? Knowledge, right? Knowledge. And he gives us a clue to what's most important with Paul. You know, and, and uh, so he concedes the, the important area of oratorical skills and, and embraces the important area of knowledge. And, and, and I would propose to you that would be about the opposite of what most homiletics classes teach in modern day. They want you to know how to use the microphone. They want to know how they want, they want you to have a certain expression on your face and, and use your hands in a certain way. And they're judging that whole thing. And you would think that that's the only thing that mattered. And sometimes the be best grades in the homiletic class went to guys who did the worst job, with, in, in my opinion, with the text, but they looked fantastic doing it. And, and that's the way it is now anymore, I think. And, and we want to move away from that. Paul just takes it right out of there. He just says, listen, I may be an idiot in, in uh, speaking, but I'm no idiot in knowledge. And that word gnosis, he's really speaking of the spiritual gift of knowledge, and we've looked at that at length. And it is um, a gift given to believers that they can understand the facts of the Scripture, the ability to know the truth of the Scripture, both broadly and deeply. Every believer is charged with knowing what the Word of God says and, and let it dwell in you richly with all knowledge, okay? So everybody's given that charge, but some the Lord has gifted with, with the spiritual gift of knowledge to a greater or lesser extent, and so... Uh, and again, as I told you before, you know, you have the same text I do and the same tutor as I do. You can do the same types of things because you have the same ability. But this comprehensive understanding of the scriptures, which would manifest itself in teaching and training and discipling and explaining and passing on those truths, the Spirit gives the ability to articulate that clearly so people can hear it and understand it. See? And, and, you know, I kind of wonder, as I said to you before, you know, think about the uh, turn of the 19th century. Think about the churches across the nation. Uh, hot stuffy buildings with wooden pews and a lot of times no instruments at all no and certainly no band and no nothing flashy or whatever and you're coming and you're you're dressed you know with your stuff all the way up to here and whatever and wool and and you sit in the pew and you listen to the word of god is that enough today i wonder 
if it is. I think it is for those who really love Christ. They wouldn't care. They, they would come and hear the Word of God. But, you know, kind of wonder how, how much is tied up in the presentation anymore and the comfort. And, and I'm not against having, I mean, I'll be the first one to say, I love air conditioning, okay? I don't mind. And I'm glad the Lord's given us a place to do it. But you think about third world countries, you know, and we've seen some of the pictures where Eli and Jess are, you know, it's a thatched roof hut and there aren't even any chairs in there yet. There's just stumps cut and people sit on them. But they come, right? And where do they come to? To hear. They hear, hear the word of God so they can be equipped. And I think that's an important point. And Paul's making this here, I think. So, so this word knowledge here, Paul means primarily for him, as we kind of bring it back to the text, insight into the mystery of the gospel. Paul says that a lot. Um, which he was able to discern that these false teachers did not have because they preached a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different spirit. So knowledge is important, isn't it? You have to know the Jesus and the spirit and, and, uh, and all those kinds of things in order to be able to make uh, a clear distinction, right? You have to know if it's the wrong gospel. So Paul had that knowledge. He was able to discern that they weren't teaching the right things. So that's, that's an encouragement to you too. But a few illustrations again. Colossians 1.25, you're going to see uh, much the same type of language. He talks to the church in Colossae, which was a cyclical letter. We know it went to several churches. But of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. In other words, God entrusted me with the job to do here, and that is to what? That I, for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of what? Of the word of God. So it's pretty important. I, the Lord made me a steward, and, and I was supposed to come and preach the word of God to you. That is, and here's he describes it, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. So this mystery of the gospel wasn't clear before. Now God has entrusted me to give it to you so that you can understand it. That's knowledge at work. Ephesians 1.9. Um, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. So he made known both to Paul and he says to the church because he's including them, this mystery of his will, what he wants you to do and how he wants you to act. It's not a secret. And I was able to explain that to you, Paul says. And Ephesians 3, 2. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me. Again, he says the same thing to Ephesus as he did to Colossae. What is it, Paul? That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. So in other words, I, I have knowledge of the mystery of the gospel. As I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. So again, he just says, God's given me this spiritual gift of knowledge, and I have been able to discern the mystery of the gospel and, and break that on down so you can understand it. Now you can go and you can run with it. So Paul's opponents have failed to understand properly, and included in knowledge is probably what the Spirit was teaching, uh, not the deceiving spirits, but true spirits. 1 Corinthians 2.12, remember, Paul says... Um, we have received, as he brings the church into the whole dialogue, we have received not the spirit of the world, this is the spirit that these false teachers are using, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why do we have that? So we may know the things freely given to us by God. You're only going to know those kinds of things if the, if the Holy Spirit is at work in you. Not false spirits, but the Holy Spirit's at work. You have that knowledge. Verse 13, which things we also speak, not in words taught with human wisdom. So we're not trying to be clever. We're not trying to put together this package so you'll receive it because it sounds so good coming out of my mouth. He says, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Again, this understanding of knowledge and making this clear. And then Acts 20, verse 26, Paul's at the end of his ministry and he's leaving these believers in Ephesus, and some others have come, and he says this in this group. It's very heartbreaking, but then very encouraging. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day 
that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why are you innocent of the blood of all men? Because in Ezekiel, they weren't, were they? They didn't build up the wall. They didn't make the people hard so that they could understand and discern the times. And they were, they were guilty of deceiving the people, which caused great destruction on the land. So it's the opposite. Paul says, I'm not guilty of anybody's blood. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you what? The whole purpose of God. What's your job as, a, as an overseer? Declaring to the church the whole purpose of God. Why do they need that? So they can discern and know between true and false. It's impossible to do that if you don't declare the whole purpose of God, which again brings me back to if all you're doing is picking your nice passages that you really like, and that's the only thing you're ever preaching to the church by, by way of subject matter, then you're missing a whole bunch of stuff, and you're not getting the whole counsel of God, and it's going to be very difficult to discern what you need to know. So we go through hard parts, and other guys are doing this too. So I gave you the whole purpose of God. Then he says this, be on guard for yourselves. You've had the whole purpose, so you have the knowledge you need. And for the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So who is he speaking to? Particularly those who are going to oversee the church. That's another word for elder. Somebody who's going to pastor the church when he's gone. To shepherd the church of God. That's the, the job of the overseer, to work as a shepherd, and under-shepherd. Which he purchased with his own blood. That's how valuable it is. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So here it is. False teachers are going to come. They're going to have some information that seems like it's new and seems like it's true, but you're going to be able to be able to discern that it isn't, see, because I've given you what, I'm, I'm innocent of your blood. For from among your own selves, men will arise. So other elders, other, other overseers are going to come in. Is, is it new for today? No, it's been going on since the first century. And speak perverse things and draw away disciples after them, which is precisely what's going on in, in the Corinthian church right now. And of all this, Paul says, in every way we've made this plain to you in all things. He, he no doubt has in mind the 18 months he spent there teaching them uh, the Word of God, the whole counsel of God in Corinth, and, and certainly uh, during uh, his first visit to the city and the instruction given to them by letters and the subsequent visits that he's made since that time. So the rest of verse 6, he says, but even if I am unskilled in speech, Yet I'm not so in knowledge, for in fact, in every way we've made this evident to you in all things. So Paul knows he's unskilled in speech, and he's okay with that. Why? Because he doesn't want to be clever. He's not interested in theatrics. He's not interested in manipulating people with a really emotional poem at the end, and you want to really draw them in, and then we play some really uh, meaningful choruses up here, and so you just feel like you need to do something. Paul knows it, and every preacher knows that Human eloquence draws men to the preacher and not the cross. And I've said that to you over and over again, that if you come and you hook up with the message, you say that was really great, and then you walk out and you don't do anything different, I failed. Okay, my desire is to teach you in such a way that you can model that in your, own, in your own Bible study, that you can do it this way, see? Faithful preaching should result in men and women admiring the message of the Word of God. I don't care if you think about me at all when you leave here, and you shouldn't, you know, every church that's doing it right shouldn't care whether or not you remember what I, what I said or, you know, how I said it or how I came across. I, I really want to be invisible just like the band. I want you to commune with the Lord, and, you know, I want you to walk out, you know, and, and, and realize that the Word of God who, you know, that's the very thoughts and intents in the minds and the quills of men spoke directly to each of our lives. And we looked at it specifically. And faithful preaching should not make people admire the preacher. They should make people admire the Christ of the preacher. They should uh, come out of the message. They should desire to make that process and that knowledge their own. That's what you really want. That's what Paul wanted. 
It's like, I don't care if I'm unskilled in speech. I don't care if I stumble over all kinds of stuff. I, I want to give you the knowledge. You can come out and you can say, what a great God you serve. And, and I really want to do the things you want me to do. In 1 Corinthians 1, 17, he says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize. You remember this? We looked at this. You know, you have this whole, this whole, uh, old, I'm, I'm a Paul, I was baptized by Paul. You know, how many would like to be baptized by Paul? I mean, gotta admit, I would love that, right? But he says, you know, I, I, Paul, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. I, I didn't come to baptize. I didn't come to be really clever among you. And you, you remember Paul is a really good speaker, man. I just love listening to him speak. You know, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You know, I, and this just popped into my mind. You know, I remember in, in seminary, Gary Habermas was uh, teaching full-time there in the seminary, and I, and I took him as often as I could. And I go see him lecture anytime I get a chance. You know why? Not because he's clever of speech. He's really kind of straightforward. He doesn't move around or anything. He doesn't get your attention. It's what he says gets your attention. He's taken the time to put it in. And when he speaks, I'm just like, oh, my goodness. You know, your hair stands up on, your ends, uh, on its end sometimes. That is so amazing. I walk out of there thinking he was a fantastic speaker because he's not. But he is a, he is a great communicator. What he says, I start focusing on when I leave that lecture. He's fantastic in that way. That's what I'm talking about, you know. This is a guy who's at the pinnacle of his, of his profession, of, of, of his dis discipline. He is the top guy, I mean, arguably. But you'd never know it if you, you stood in his presence and listened to him speak because he's really interested in making Jesus look good. He's, he's interested in people being, being firm in their understanding that Christ rose and this is not like some check your brain at the door kind of thing. This is like Christ did rise. This is very well known. And what does that mean for me? See, that's, the, that's what I'm talking about. Paul says, you know, I didn't, I didn't come to, to, to manipulate the word of God, you know, and, and to make you think I'm fantastic. The word of Christ is foolishness to those who are perishing. No matter how creative I was, I would be an unredeemed person. Here's what I say, and they just think that's stupid. But for those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God, focusing not on the messenger, but the message, right? For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I'm going to set aside. I've got an end for all those people who just think it's just about what you say and making it really cool and hip and whatever. God's not only going to put up, he's not going to put up with that nonsense for so long. Back just a few verses, 1 Corinthians 1, 12, he says, Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and I of Christ. Just chasing after names and chasing after styles was part of the Corinthian culture. Paul's still battling it right now. You know, except now they're grabbing on to hypocritical liars we saw last week. And saying, oh, you know, this guy taught me stuff you didn't teach me, Paul. I mean, I, I know the truth now. Has Christ been divided, Paul says? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. That's all I remember, Paul says. You know, I didn't come to baptize. No one would say you were baptized in my name. That would be the worst thing you could possibly imagine. People walking out and saying, I baptized in Paul's name. No, you were baptized in the body of Christ. You were buried and you rose and you showed that to the whole congregation. You know, and, and he just means here that they were always fighting in Corinth about who belonged to who and pride was an issue. I'm of Paul, you know, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And, and you know, there was going to be a contest. Oh, I was baptized by Paul. Who baptized you? Oh, Apollos? Well, you know, that's not as good as Cephas or whatever. So he says, you know, I don't want to get into that. I baptize, I will baptize, but not everybody will be baptized by Paul, and that's not the issue. But I will preach to everybody the gospel. I'm going to reiterate, and beloved, that 
that's that, that word prophecy, reiteration. I would say 85% of the word prophecy used in Scripture is a reiteration of what God has already said, okay? Keep that in mind when people say, well, I'm a prophet, you know. Does that mean you're foretelling? Because, and you've gone into a really small group of foretellers, okay? And now we get to stone you if you're wrong. Just be a reiterator, okay? Just say what God's already said. You're not going to go wrong there. Just keep doing it over and over again. And, you know, Paul says, I'll reiterate the word of God to everyone. I'm not manipulating it anyone with clever speech. Paul says, I avoid that. I don't want uh, to be complex, you know. I say those a lot, but, you know, sometimes people say, well, a preacher's really hard to understand. And I, and I always say, it's easy to be hard to understand. Just don't know what you're talking about. If you try to talk about something that you don't know what you're talking about, it's going to be really hard to understand, okay? So if your preacher's really hard to understand, you need to go somewhere else, okay? He probably doesn't know what he's talking about. Just keep it simple. Just reiterate what God says. You don't have to, be, you have to put together all these fantastic words, you know? You don't have to be culturally relevant. That's such a catchphrase. I'm, I want to be culturally relevant. So you know, all the, you know all the hip language, you wear the cool clothes, whatever. Powerless. Drawing attention to yourself. Okay, culturally relevant, What? Just speak in the power of God and the cross of Christ, the message of obedience, the joy of the promises, right? The doctrine that's so imperative in order for the church to have discernment. Just do that so they can avoid error and be the true bride, true to the bridegroom. Look at the last part of verse 6 and we're all done. In fact, in every way we've made this evident to you in all things. And that's the four, uh, Mark 14, if you're, if you're keeping this, it's the 14th mark of a faithful teacher as we started in chapter 10. It doesn't really matter. He, he studies, he takes in the knowledge of the word of God. And then he reiterates that to the church. And it's long, so just abbreviate it. You know, the thing about this is, is the guy who's teaching you should be expanding his own knowledge base so the church has an opportunity to get stronger and wiser and more spiritual and more mature. They get deeper and deeper and deeper. They understand more and more of those things because the guy who's leading is understanding and trying, trying to understand more and more. They're not trying to be culturally relevant, not trying to be hip and cool. He's trying to understand more of the Word of God and making that clear and simple so people can grow because that's where the power is, see? And here's the thing. You can teach the clear, simple, straightforward word of God, and somebody can walk out and say, well, he certainly wasn't much of an intellect. I didn't hear anything very scholarly from him. He doesn't seem very well read. And, beloved, if you don't think that's going on in churches, you are totally mistaken, okay? Listen, I, and I've done this long enough to have multiple people come up and say things at the end of a service. But I'll one thing that happened here one time, this person's not here, <clears throat> they walked up after a message like this and said, you said the word for 17 times in your sermon. And the fleshly part of me wanted to say a lot of stuff, like you listen to four, pass, four, uh, four verses out of the Word of God exegetically expounded so that you could understand it, and the only thing you came out of with is I said the word for 17 times in my message. What is the matter with you? I have people come up and say this. I don't get a thing out of your preaching. And I want to say, is that a commentary on me or a commentary on you? But I don't say either of those things. So to the first guy, I said, I am so sorry that was distracting to you. I know I do things that are distracting, okay? I'm not claiming I do it all perfectly. I, I'm not a good order. I, I admit it. I'm not interested in that. And, you know, if, but if your ears are wanting to hear well, he was really well read. That was super scholarly. I, I thought he was really smart. He did a really great job of that passage. That was super new or, or whatever. If that's what you're listening to and then somebody says, I didn't hear anything very scholarly. He doesn't very well read. That's really going to sting. 
Because the fear of man brings a snare. If you're worried when you're up here that people are going to like you and really think that you're really good, then that's just a reverse way to pat yourself on the back. You want them to pat your, you on the back. See? And you're going to think you're substandard. I mean, that's how you're going to evaluate yourself. And when he said that, you said the word for 17 times. I, I, was, I was like, man, that obviously I did because he counted them all. So maybe somebody else heard that too. And that distracted them. But you got, I mean, you got to shake that off. I didn't mean to. The churches are still full of people just like that, just like they were in Paul's time. Man, in academic circles, whoa. You know? But I can imagine, you know, Habermas and others, you know, there's some of the great preachers of the past. If you, if you, if you listen to their, they have a whole book of things that were said to say these great preachers of the past. After he got done with, you know, and you know their messages were incredible. I mean, people come up and, and, uh, I wasn't convinced by anything you said, you know, whatever. And you preach on hell too much, you know. You should preach on more of uh, the lovely Christ. You responded, it's the lovely Christ that told me about hell, you know, that kind of thing. So you can have people come out just like that, and, 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 th- and then and, and this is a very big and, and very important. You know, people can walk out and say, you know, at the same time that people are saying you said four or 17 times, or, you know, you weren't very scholarly or whatever, they can walk out of the same to say, I want Jesus Christ as my Savior. The same message. See, I want Jesus Christ as my Savior. They can walk out and say, I am tired of my sin. I'm recommitting myself to following Jesus because I want to love him with my actions and not my words. See, same message. I want to know the word more. I want to study the word more so I can walk in obedience. Same people said, he was very annoying in those things that he did up there. In the same message, you'll be helping people along to live the life of loving Jesus only and supremely as Savior and Lord. See? And that's what you're after. That's what you're after because, you know, God says in 1 Corinthians 1.19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I'm going to set that aside. He's not going to exalt it. You're not going to get any value out of it. There's not going to be a reward for being culturally irrelevant. There's going to be a big reward by faithfully discharging the word of God. And so that's what we're going to focus on. That's what a faithful teacher is going to focus on. That's what Paul is focusing on and drawing the church back to him. So we'll end right there. Let's be dismissed in a word of prayer. If you would bow with me, if we just kind of commit our way to the Lord as we end in this service and move out into uh, the things that will happen this week. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be uh, together. It's just such a joy to do that. As we prayed earlier this morning with the band, it was just such a joy just to be together in fellowship and just of one mind wanting to do some certain thing that would bring you glory. It's very much the same now as we, as we prayed earlier and just submitted ourselves to you and come up under you in submission and as we gave of what we have we just worshiped you that way and as we read the word we just are so grateful that we together can enjoy understanding what you want us to do and then responding in obedience so father help us to be a more church like that and and fathers we think about faithfulness and we think about um, knowledge and doctrine lord help us to be as wise as we can be reading your word each day so we'll know what to say and have the gracious way to go about saying it uh, that we can show that there's another option there's another way to think Uh, which can throw down these high things raised up against the knowledge of you and of Christ. And so, Father, thank you for a a time to be together and the joy that it is and for our our moving out into the uh, community uh, right now, Lord. Help us to remember the things you told us to do. Love love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself and then to go in the Great Commission and, and preach the gospel to every creature and teaching them to observe everything you've told us. And you've told us you'll be with us always. And so we're so grateful for that. Help us to do those kinds of things as we're equipped here to do it. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said.
Amen.